difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky, and Tasha Robinson. Here on the Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to allow me to get away with the laziest, most obvious introduction <laughs> possible for a Mission Impossible pairing. Okay, well, that's enough of that. So, here's the situation. Some vague international syndicate of disgruntled spies and ne'er-do-wells have gotten their hands on a cache of weapons-grade plutonium. The good news? We know where the plutonium is. The bad news? You're going to have to repel off the face of Mount Everest to get it. And by you, I mean 56-year-old movie star Tom Cruise, who's been training for months with local Sherpas to acclimate himself to the thin air, punishing cold, and treacherous landscape. Good luck to him. This podcast gimmick will self-destruct in five seconds. So, Tasha, what are we talking about this week? Mission colon impossible N-Fallout is the sixth entry in the franchise inspired by the popular spy series from the late 1960s and early 1970s. In the 22 years since the original Mission Impossible, the series has cycled through five different directors, shifts in production teams, and a complete overhaul of its supporting cast, save for Ving Rhames, whose Luther Stickle has stickled around from the beginning. The one constant is producer-star Tom Cruise, who's used the franchise to keep his star ascendant, even as his age and his personal life have made that mission a challenge, if not beyond the realm of the possible. And what's more, he's upped the ante with each entry. The first Mission Impossible is a spy thriller built around a handful of Hitchcockian set pieces. But the most recent entries, including Fallout, have been a showcase for huge stunts and practical effects. For Cruise, it's like a Benjamin Button effect. He seems to be aging in reverse. The release of Mission Impossible 6 is a good opportunity to remember where this franchise started and where it's gone. So today, we'll look at Brian De Palma's 1996 Mission Impossible, in which the iconoclastic director was brought back into the studio fold. Then next week, we'll bring in Mission Impossible Fallout, directed by Christopher McQuarrie, and discuss how the series has opened up into an international adventure that stands apart from the modern blockbuster. The unmasking begins after the break. Always. It's much worse than you think. We're being ambushed. Abort, that's an order. They knew, they knew we were coming. Do you read me? I don't care how he did it. I want to know why he did it. You're worried about me. Why? You survived. I'm sure we can find something I have that you need. No These guys are trained to be ghosts. Let's not waste time chasing after him. Let's make him come to us. Find something that's personally important to him and you squeeze. seen me very upset. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Thomas Cruz Mopather IV was born on July 3rd, 1962 in Syracuse, New York. Then a bunch of stuff happened. Then in 1981, at only 19 years old, Tom Cruise scored a major supporting role in TAPS. Two years later, he was part of a who's who of up-and-coming stars in The Outsiders and graduated to leading man status that same year with all the right moves and risky business. He would become the face of the 80s, bristling with all-American confidence in films like Top Gun, The Color of Money, Cocktail, and Rain Man. In fact, his cocksure attitude was so outsized that it became a theme of several of those films, like Top Gun and The Color of Money, where he must learn to check his arrogant certainty with discipline and teamwork, and in Rain Man, where he must learn to be less self-involved and take responsibility for his brother's well-being. 
There can be no questioning Tom Cruise's star quality in these movies, but it might be fair to question his range. The Cruise persona has been worked through many iterations over the years, some of them persuasive dramatic performances like Born on the Fourth of July, Jerry Maguire, Eyes Wide Shut, and Magnolia. But the story has remained very much the same, the humbling of a spectacularly self-assured man. How does he get away with it? How does he remain one of Hollywood's biggest stars, even as he's aged into his mid-50s and suffered significant PR damage related to his involvement in Scientology? The answer, I think, is curation. Consider the directors Cruz has worked with. Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Barry Levinson when he was good, Oliver Stone when he was good, <laughs> Rob Reiner when he was good, Neil Jordan when he was good, he was always pretty good, uh, Cameron Crowe, Stanley Kubrick, Paul Thomas Anderson, Steven Spielberg, Michael Mann, Doug Lyman, Every single one of the men, he has, to my knowledge, never worked with a female director, but an incredible roster of talent nonetheless. The Mission Impossible series is a testament to his career-building philosophy. There have been six of them with five different directors, Brian De Palma, John Woo, J.J. Abrams, Brad Bird, and Christopher McQuarrie. The only continuity to the series, other than Ving Rhames, is Cruz himself, who has produced and starred in every one, and handpicked the filmmakers. The franchise has been so consistently pleasurable because the continuity between one film and the next isn't as important as the filmmakers playing a game of one-upmanship. It's like a theme park that keeps bringing visitors back with new, ever more elaborate attractions. With the Palma, though, Cruz was rolling the dice on an iconoclast who didn't always play nice with Hollywood. In fact, De Palma would blow the credibility he earned on Mission Impossible on his next two features, Snake Eyes and Mission to Mars, and spend most of the following years scrounging up financing from European investors who would let De Palma be De Palma. But on Mission Impossible, the stakes were high for De Palma too, and the prospect of launching a blockbuster franchise around the world's biggest movie star was an opportunity to prove himself as a craftsman, much like The Untouchables did for him nine years earlier. Between The Untouchables and Mission Impossible, De Palma directed four straight flops, two of the masterpieces, in my opinion, and desperately needed a win. Over the next two episodes, we'll talk plenty about how Mission Impossible has evolved since De Palma took a semi-obscure late 60s, early 70s spy TV show and turned it into a hit. But De Palma's most important contribution, and the reason why he was hired, was the primacy of the sequence. We remember Mission Impossible movies not by their titles, like Fallout or Ghost Protocol or Rogue Nation, and we certainly don't remember them by their plots, which are always these serpentine creations that are mostly just a pretense to action. But we remember the ones where Cruz's character, Ethan Hunt, climbs outside the Burj Khalifa Hotel, or dives into an underwater vault, or hangs off airplanes and helicopters. And so, we remember that De Palma gave us the party sequence, the Langley break-in sequence, and the train sequence in Mission Impossible, all meticulously constructed, multifaceted jewels of suspense. One of them is, in my view, the best such sequence of the last quarter century. You can probably guess which one. And it set the standard which all future Mission Impossible movies would have to not only emulate, but exceed. The lesson is this. Thomas Cruise Mopather IV knows what he's doing. Simple game. Four players. Exfil opens the pocket. Cyberops lifts the wall. Bank. I'm F. Mainframe. Where exactly is In Langley. In Langley? The one in Virginia, Langley. Inside CIA headquarters at Langley. Is this serious? Always. <laughs> if we're going to Virginia, why don't we drop by Fort Knox? I can fly a helicopter right in through the lobby and set it down inside the vault. And it would be a hell of a lot easier than breaking to the goddamn CIA. Okay, so it's been 22 years since Mission Impossible. The culture has changed. The series has changed. Has your opinion changed too? I think I like it more now than I... Oh, than, really? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe maybe it's just because I was going back to... I mean, I've seen this movie probably at least three or four times, prob probably more than that, but not in the last... I'd say, oh, no, I just rewatched it a couple years ago. Okay. <laughs> I guess I forget how much I like it in between viewings. And I tend to go back to it after having seen the most recent Mission Impossible movie. And like, I think just the experience of going back to 
when it was a much more pure spy thriller. It definitely feels like the beginning of this franchise, but it also feels so different from what the modern Mission Impossible movie has become. It's always kind of like exciting to go back. Plus that Langley break-in sequence, Scott, I'm sure that's the, mm-hmm. the one you mentioned in the keynote. Like That is just breathtaking to watch every single time. I never get sick of watching that sequence. I think that's fascinating. I The modern ones for me, I think, have made this one look very stiff. Not so much in the action sequences, but in the acting sequences. And Tom Cruise in particular, I don't know if he's grown into being more of a human being or he's just grown into imitating human beingosity better. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's just so many sequences in this movie where he sort of like cocks his head and bugs his eyes and just mm-hmm. kind of holds it for a long moment. Oh, yeah. And that's meant to stand in for emotion. And there's, there's so much of it that happens in this movie. Like I never really feel like I'm watching human beings experience any kind of anything. And because this movie is so based in people's emotions, like there are plenty of action movies where it wouldn't matter. But here I keep getting the idea that they want us to feel things that I'm just not feeling for him. See, I guess I kind of feel that with all the movies in the Mission Impossible franchise. I just feel that maybe it's the De Palma factor or maybe it's the fact that this is still Tom Cruise and his sort of cocky persona, you know, before Ethan Hunt gets really damaged and traumatized. But I think it works for me here, I guess. Like, it, not an issue for me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I think it helps in some ways. I know, I'm sure we'll get into it, but like Ethan Hunt as a character is, there's just not a lot to him, you yeah. know, it's just, it's just Tom Cruise fills it with, with Tom Cruise-ness. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'd forgotten there's all this business with his family and yeah. his dad having died. And you know, that's before he got a wife to motivate everything he did. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, no, I, I you know, I, I like the series an awful lot. And I, and De Palma is a favorite of mine. I don't think I've seen this since it was in theaters, actually. And, oh. and uh, no, it holds up really well. I think um, it is a different pace than what we've, we've come to expect from Mission Impossible series, but not, uh, not in a bad way. And, and, and like, I'd forgotten how much a De Palma film it was. You know, when I remembered when I was like, oh, yeah, this is a De Palma film. Which one? Emilio Estevez on, on the elevator. His demise. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, that, is so, that is such. A, but it's a P, it's a PG thirteen yeah. diploma. Yeah. You know, you know, if you were given free reign, there that would be bloody as hell. Well, for me, I mean, obviously, that's that's a great moment too. But but like, I had forgotten how much it fits in his filmography until the scene where it's Cruz holding the bloody knife. And authorities think he's done. He's like, oh, it's the wrong man. He's just doing, he gets to do Hitchcock again, you know, <laughs> which plays out pretty well. Uh, if you see another De Palma riff on Hitchcock, it, it works on that way, uh, on that level as well. It's an interesting one for me for, I mean, as a complete De Palma fanatic, it's interesting to me to compare the, what he does here with what he does when it's sort of a De Palma unchained because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of give here on his part. I think it's aesthetically recognizable as something that, uh, of his. It's got a lot of his hallmarks. It's, uh, it's a, lot, a lot of interesting multi-screen work, a lot of very meticulous Hitchcockian construction. I mean, all those things I really like about De Palma, but what is missing are, are some of the aspects of social commentary and things that, you know, some of the meteor aspects of De Palma's films, so the more satirical aspects are, are not that present. Which it is, is closest to Untouchables that way. Exactly, sure. which, is, which is another De Palma film that many people really like that, that I'm somewhat cooler on. Mm-hmm. I mean, by somewhat I mean I still really like it, but it's not, it's not one of my favorites because I feel like there's a little bit of a distance and there's a little bit of a situation with both The Untouchables and Mission Impossible where it's Brian De Palma playing with studio money and being able to deliver something that, that is going to be something that he likes and something that they like too, and not something that's wholly generated from him. But to the point about the, I mean, we'll get in, I guess, to the differences between this and the subsequent ones. I mean, I've seen the subsequent ones took the idea of the sequence, as I said, the intro, like the, the notion of the sequence being important and kept that part of it. And that's a, an important part of the, of all of the mission possible movies. But this is very much a dense, somewhat talky at times, mm-hmm. uh, spy thriller in a way that the others are not it's very much bogged down in, in intrigue and the intrigue is um it's kind of exciting and it's and it's an interesting kind of like object of art but it, again it's not really revealing any sort of deeper layers it's just you just kind of have to appreciate this elaborate construction which i come to appreciate i mean it's it's a film that people often joke 
about because many people find it impossible to sort out. <laughs> Mission Impossible is figuring out what's going on. Uh, right, but but I mean, I, I've sort of but gotten I don't, I don't a I've better s- sense of it over time. But I don't, it, yeah, I, it's it's dense, but I don't think it's impossible to follow. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I mean, this is a series. Like one of the hallmarks of the series is literally like opening exposition. The whole thing with the tape. You know, I had forgotten that in this first movie, it goes to John Voight's character and and not directly to Ethan Hunt. I think he is the receiver of the tapes and all the subsequent films but just like that laying out of this is the baseline this is the the mission and we're going to spend the rest of the movie sort of twisting this around i mean i don't have very good plot recall of any of the movies um because i haven't i didn't revisit them but like that sense of like a mission revealing different layers or twists as you go on, I think is consistent across all of them. I mean, it's very much a classic heist setup. And a lot of these movies have like miniature versions of the heist thing. Like this one has a miniature version of the heist thing where you lay out either here are all of the barriers, blow, like blow by blow. Here are all of the things we have to overcome. And then either you explain how you're going to do it and it goes wrong, or you don't explain how you're going to do it and it goes right with, you know, minor variants or major difficulties, but that do get overcome. And the Mission Impossible movies, like as a whole, that's the structure is you start with that exposition and it's laying out, here's the information you need, here's what you're supposed to do, and then you know it's going to go wrong and come apart from there. So you end up with these movies that are kind of like Russian nesting dolls, like, here's the outside heist, and then there's an inner heist and an inner heist and an inner heist. And I I find that fun, but I do tend to lose track. And I think part of the reason we lose track of the plots is because they're just not really that important. You know, there's there's going to be double crosses and there's going to be reveals and that person isn't actually that person. And the person that you thought you were going after, you're actually going after somebody else. Like, given the degree to which these movies are based on everything you know is wrong, it really doesn't bear any any effort to hang on to the information that you're given because it doesn't mean anything. I think they want you to in this one, though. I think yeah. in the first film that they, they really do want to have a you – know, you'd be invested in, in the twists and turns. And I think when people were put off by the work that they needed to put in and perhaps maybe the, the film didn't quite meet them halfway, you know, I, I my head was swimming at a couple of different points in watching this again. And I think that's maybe why it got dialed back for the subsequent entries. Maybe not in two. I don't remember much about two. It's a motorcycle, right? Two, that, that, yeah, the motorcycle, I think, makes yeah, its debut. And that's the one that opens with the, the dangling on the rock face, yeah, right? I remember, yeah. that, I mostly remember being disappointed because I'm a huge John Woo fan and this mm-hmm. was not. It's almost like John Woo films that seem disappointing at the time are look, are yeah, look better now. It. Like, our target looks great. Yeah. Uh, but, but going back to the idea of here, they were still like, kind of playing the twist or the double cross a little closer to the vest like i i think that's that's accurate because like i i've seen this first one enough that like i i know from the outset like yeah john voight's bad you know and like you can see that when you're expecting it but i don't think you would necessarily see that if you weren't expecting it in the new movie like I don't think there's even any effort made to hide the double cross. Like you, you know, it's coming like less than a third into the movie and exactly what it is. And I won't, I won't get into it in, in this half, but I think it kind of speaks to how the series has evolved to where that idea of a, a double cross or whatever is just expected, you know, that they, it doesn't behoove the, the writer to even try to disguise it. Rather, you just kind of like work, it's worked into the fabric of the film. I feel like I knew, I always knew it was John Voight, first, because it's John Voight. Yeah. <laughs> and second, because I've just read too many Sidney Sheldon novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sidney Sheldon was very influential, both as a, a TV person and as a novel person. And there is a certain kind of story where if it is introduced with like, here are a bunch of like young up-and-comers and the father figure that they all trust mm-hmm. who is kind of the the core the linchpin the key that keeps them all together and manages that like 112 percent chance that that person is going to betray everybody and turn out to be the, the bad guy well, it's, a, it's an effective twist john Boyd's good yeah john Boyd's good and you really get the feeling that they that these people are emotionally invested in him and if they live long enough they realize that, that he's completely cold that said, so much of this movie is about, uh, like, this is a phrase I use a lot because I see it a lot in movies like this, but there's like this performative suffering aspect to Tom Cruise dealing with his team members being dead. And it's 
it's hard for me to accept it because I don't feel like the film does anything to earn it. Like we have no idea who these people are. And I think that the movie tries to give us feelings about them after they're already dead through him, like going like blank eyed and shuddering over their death. And he, you know, he screams and he rants and he rails and he stares into, into space. And he's just, he's trying to project so hard. That this is a really hard blow. And we're kind of like, <laughs> Jane and Joe, whoever they are, are dead, okay? Yeah, but I think it helps that you have Kristen Scott Thomas, who's amazing, and we don't see her enough of her these days, and, and Emilio Estevez, who can hold the screen, and who else is in the... Manuel Bayar? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm talking about people that, that are knocked the, out oh, pretty, knocked pretty out early. Oh, yeah. knocked out early. Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess those two would be the only ones, right? Yeah, I guess so. Um, there's, some, there's some others on the team that are knocked out as well that don't get a whole lot of things to do. I mean, it's really hard for us. I don't know there'd be any situation where we'd, we'd feel much emotional attachment to what Ethan is going through because this incident happens right away. I mean, that's, that's, you know, we can't, we can't get to know these characters and we, we really wouldn't want to waste a whole lot of time getting to know them. But it's, um, it's clever touch though, because it, as I was pointed out, it, you feel like you're watching another episode of this show, mm-hmm. you know, here's the team, here's their latest adventure. And then, uh Oh, uh, so, so, something's gone wrong. Yeah. And I mean, a couple things, I mean, in terms of other minor things in terms of story that this movie started, that other subsequent movies would followed up on were, where one, John Voight's motivation, which is that you're a spy for so long, your mo- loyalties get confused, the pay kind of sucks, and you kind of fall away and join these nefarious organizations. Uh, and then the other thing is the need to, to steal uh, the actual thing. You know what I mean? Not a fake thing. It has to be the real thing. In this mm. case, the real knock list has to be recovered. And you can't, and you can't kind of fake that part of it and that's so so, so you in a way the imf has to light the fuse before it before <laughs> before it uh, snuffs it out so um um i guess those are two kind of minor aspects that kind of hold a lot of these movies together i mean i think it's a really neat structure and it's a really daring idea like here's here's your daring team that's going in to save the world or at least save americans or at least save american intelligence people and oh they're all dead like that is a really cool idea for kicking off your franchise and establishing the stakes. I just think it's handled clumsily because I think De Palma is much more invested in the the noir aspects of like what he's going through emotionally than necessarily the film is is bringing across effectively or that Tom Cruise is playing effectively. I just I think that the whole thing is drawn out too much on, you know, dark rain slicked streets and people watching in horror as other people like slowly succumb to their wounds. Mm. And it just it, like the the pacing is off and the emotional content is off. I, but I, I do I do really respect the structure of it, though. That's such a, a De Palma thing, though. I mean, oh, the, yeah. the, the death and the, and the horror. I mean, so, so much it reminds me of Blowout. Uh, oh, for and, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it works just, for me. And, I, certain, I, and certain just choices in terms of stage. I mean, who, I, I love this the the aquarium restaurant <laughs> and the way that whole thing is handled. I mean, what was it? Was just an interesting idea to create this set and then have it blow apart with the gum thing and then of course we get a reveal later about Kittredge and and uh, our feelings about him uh, shift a little bit uh, I, I think it's I think it's smart and well placed and, uh, you know it's interesting and it's so abstract too I mean like this is not the CIA this is the IMF there's always some you know vague world ending threat happening but it's not really tied to any ideology that we can discern it's just it's just literally spy games that we're witnessing um and maybe that's maybe that was an insight that carried over into the sequels too that it's like well we can just kind of dispense from the stuff that nobody was really invested in and just use all this as a pretext for bigger and more explosive and exciting stunts and you know you know what i'm saying i mean i wish that was true the latest one gets pretty heavily into the whys and they get, get kind of ridiculous but right, i mean we'll, we're getting ahead of ourselves we there are. but in terms of how the series has evolved i think there's been a very interesting kind of back and forth about responsibility and emotional content i look forward to talking about that when we get to connections in our we next will. episode <laughs> <laughs> yes which you will experience in a week um so let's but let, let's go back to this i i, I wanted to ask if if my sort of grand theory of Tom Cruise's career uh, checks out to you and and um and wh- where he was at this point in his career um, I guess we'll discuss where he went l- later well, sum it up what is your grand theory again well it's just he's th- good well the, t- <laughs> the type of role that he 
kept playing over and over again, and and then the cocksure grinning all American uh, yeah. guy, and then and then the attempts to make that into a theme, that a recurring theme in his films of, yeah. of that being questioned or his, his arrogance being uh, undercut in some way, or him having to kind of figure out another way through life than being the man all the time. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that that so much of that did not play out in terms of uh, on the field of action in the first half of his career. And so much of it has played out in, on, in, in action films, you know, since 2000 or so, but it is kind of the same pattern. You're right. I, th- I think you're, I think you're onto something, Scott. I think-, <laughs> I think you're onto something, but I also think that he, I mean, he has kept up the arrogant guy. Like there mm. have been a lot of films where it's almost like, too soulful and suffering and then one full-on arrogant you know because you you have movies scattered in there like the firm or a few good men or eyes wide shut is a weird example but certainly like magnolia like he's still playing to that like like big loud arrogant and like it's something that he does well like he i think he projects arrogance better than he projects like deep heartfelt pain Mm -hmm. and i think it's fun when he just goes full on arrogant but i think you're right i think there's a lot of like he's set up as kind of the not the everyman because he's better than the everyman but like the 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 big bold american iconoclastic hero and then he has to suffer for his arrogance and then he comes back to it by being successful at the end Mm. like i i see why that would be a a narrative pattern yeah i think some of those better films recently have have kind of subverted that idea too like edge of tomorrow where he's he's really cowardly uh Mm -hmm. for for much much of the film and and then american American made Made, where he's he's all that and it's but it's also goes horribly wrong he spends most of the mummy getting the royal crap kicked out of him just (laughs) just over and over and over again i don't think i don't think this this mummy movie doesn't actually exist (laughs) i I saw it and i i still cannot say that it exists well, and then, and then, but the other aspect of this, too, is that Cruz is not just starring in this movie. This is a franchise that he is building around himself, starting with this film. I mean, this, this, is, this is his baby, and he has nurtured it for 22 years. And he's gone through all kinds of different production teams, all kinds of different directors. I mean, I mean that's kind of an interesting wrinkle in all of this, because so many the franchises we're used to seeing have so much continuity often in terms of the director certainly the the team of writers you really you know the story is much more serialized then that's not really the way that the crews went about it again i think until this latest movie but again we're getting ahead of ourselves Mm -hmm. but I, i mean like i think the sort of this franchise is just kind of a really good microcosm of the tom cruise character especially like going back to this first movie and seeing how ethan hunt is introduced to us as this very cocksure gum chewing maverick if you will Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know character and like over the course of this movie he is like put in a position where he has to struggle to maintain his superiority. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And as the franchise has progressed, I think it has succeeded to an extent in adding layers to the Ethan Hunt character that sort of like take him away from that initial sort of Tom Cruise in the 80s stereotype and more into these other aspects of the Tom Cruise persona that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, But at, at the same time, Ethan Hunt is kind of a cipher. Like we don't really know that much about him. We only know how he like reacts to the scenarios in which we see him. Until this most recent movie, his backstory was sort of a joke. I mean, it still sort of is, you know, or like in terms of his motivation, just like the lack of any sort of like concrete information about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it's interesting to go back to this introduction of Ethan Hunt and see how it goes from this kind of stereotypical Tom Cruise character, then it evolves, kind of evolves over the course of the movie, but really evolves over the course of the franchise while still staying a pretty not that complex character. Well, I think that you might be able to look at him as almost as you would a soldier, as like sort of the tip of the spear. I, I, he's not the type of person who is going to necessarily question the underlying motives. I guess he kind of does it a, a little bit of the underlying mo- motives of why he's being sent on a job. But one thing that he is committed to is his team. Is, is, is made, in those relationships, those are paramount. And, and doing, a, doing a job and doing it, well and and risking himself doing i mean it's a very simple thing that he that his character is trying to do i mean i you can, i guess you, you very you could, simple saving the world yeah, I mean, you could say you could say it's a, he's a, a cipher but i think he's almost just 
a good employee. He's devoted. <laughs> he's devoted to the work, right? But he's also devoted to his team. I mean, there's a degree yeah. to which he's a total cipher here, and like over the course of the franchise, his background has become the films that we've seen yeah. because pretty much all that's important about his character is that he's dogged and that he worries about the people he feels responsible for. Yeah, And I think it's interesting to talk about Ethan Hunt uh, in terms of dedication to his job and to IMF because I 100% agree that he is dedicated to his team. I have a harder time agreeing that he is dedicated to IMF given how many, given like how much of a theme in the series it is like him being, you will be disavowed. Like it's right there in the boilerplate text, Mm -hmm. you, you know, and like over and over and over again, if you want to talk about hallmarks of this series, Ethan Hunt being somehow at odds with IMF or some aspect of IMF is almost always part of the story. He's he's rogue. He's uh, he's, Wanted, uh, he's yeah. suspected. Does yeah. he is play by a... his rules or their? <laughs> is, I think he mostly... might be a good looking rebel who plays by his own rules. <laughs> is it mo- mostly like IMF it. itself that is disavowed and that is you know outside of? I mean, it's the norm, and in, in you know what I mean. Like, I think it's this one is just he's disavowed, but I yeah. think it's. Yeah, but I think they're all. Well, they there, all there's, are. there's a whole list, the disavowed list, but but like yeah. there's in the the tape, there's the the line about if you or your team are discovered, oh, IMF yeah. will disavow any knowledge of your your mission. But that gives them, as it were, a license to kill. To go back to our Bond episode, it gives them a extraordinary freedom of movement because they can do anything they want because nobody's ever going to have to take the blame for it. And I think that that's the fundamental theme of this series is, is that much power a good thing or not? And it, what we see over and over is it's a good thing if it's in the hands of Ethan Hunt and yeah. maybe not in the hands of anybody it's else. It's barely a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's often right on the edge of being an, an utter disaster. Yeah. I mean, even if you accept that results, you know, that all that matters are the results, the results are often fairly hinky because of the choices he makes with his um, either immense discretionary power or just willingness to make whatever call he sees fit in the moment. Yeah. So as I wrote in the intro, I mean, the, the film is about the art of the sequence, and there are three big sequences in here, right? I mean, really, there's the there's Prague. the there's the, par- the party, the Langley break-in, the helicopter se- scenes. So so I, I kind of wanted to break those down and kind of get into what makes them work. I mean, uh, maybe starting with uh, with Langley, since since that's that's the one I'm assuming we all admire the most. Oh yeah. Oh for sure. Yeah. To me, that is the sequence that I just they should teach it in film school. They should sit every person who wants to make an action film down to watch it it's almost it's almost like it become a lost language in the sense that like you know films sort of started embracing a more visceral uh, you know assemblage of images more so than doing what De Palma does here which is just establishing everything and just establishing where everybody's in relation to each, each other where, where you know the pulley the the duct the the rat all the way things the, can go wrong all the things that can go wrong and just you know and of course it sets up quite nicely all of the obstacles that they have to get through and then and then there are always going to be those moments where fate intervenes and messes up the plan and then they have to find a way through and it just it's so clean here just the, the cleanness of it is what what brings so much suspense to it i mean and, and this this whole thing of course uh, langley was a big homage to Rafifi, the classic jules dassin heist film where that where they also break in from the ceiling down and in Rafifi it's just like a what a 30 minute around 30 minutes uh, yeah and it's probably even more silent than this one very silent yeah it's all natural this has a couple of cutaways to other people it does uh, it does this is different than that it also feels a little bit like an homage to 2001 mm-hmm. too that the, the whiteness of that room and again the silence of him dis- of him descending and not being able to make a sound you know, not having his, te- te- you know, the temperature of the room rise a degree, you know, and then that inc- incredible bit where he sweats and he has to keep this drop of sweat from hitting the floor. And it's it's all just so and then satisfying. The rat. And the, the rat appears. I love it. Yeah. And, and Jean Reno with a, with a, with a cold, the sniffles and he's, and they've got the, the noise meter. It's just, it's all so good. Yeah. I mean, all the rules are laid out there. The space they're in is all laid out there. It's, it's, I mean, beautifully done. It's worth noting this came out the same summer as The Rock. 
yeah. sort of the ascendant uh, action aesthetic versus the classic action aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I, I can't think of a single scene in The Rock that 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 is you know is memorably put together. Um, it's more of a I remember the overall sensation of The Rock. But, right. Uh, I mean, that, and that's the difference. It's just it's just saying that 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 if you hit the audience with enough sensation, you can get away with you know fudging all of the other stuff. And I hate the sad fact that they fudge all the other stuff because I, I think that's what makes it makes it so suspenseful and it's 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 just so pleasurable to see something this classically constructed yeah it is really the difference like hit, hitting them with sensation the train sequence hits you with sensation mm-hmm. this sequence is designed to make you hold your breath and I, I mean, I think part of just why it plays so well is because the space is so well defined. You know, you see it from so many different angles, like you're you're creeping into it with him. You're seeing him from below, from the side, from above. There's just that, that constant sense of like, you know, everything that is likely to come into play in this space. You don't know how it's going to come into play, how it's going to go wrong. It's a pressure cooker. It's a it's a tiny little self-contained pressure cooker where you can see everything that's going to happen. You know, it's not a big space that's out of control and that you think new things are going to come into. It's just it's this like tiny little area that you have to hold your breath because so many things are happening within it. But there are these little like moments of mini release worked throughout like I'm thinking of the the runner of the guy with vomiting you know mm-hmm. and like the threat that he's about to come back but oh nope he's, he's <laughs> vomiting again and it's like this little moment of humor that is also sort of like a, a little pressure release valve as this incredibly tense thing is happening in the same scene and I, I think the the rat is also kind of one of those moments too you know and, and when he drops you know and, and it, it, like that is just such a <gasps> moment like when he drops to the floor and then catch them in the last minute and like you're not out of the tension yet, but there is a little moment of release there, you know? So it's like, there's a lot of dynamism, I guess, to the to the suspense in the sequence. Release the rope, release the tension. Yeah. Release the rat. <laughs> well, and then, it, then it's off the track, and so, so it makes a scraping noise because it's its own <laughs> yeah. issue. But God, they, they, I mean, that image of Cruz, well, hanging there just generally, but hanging that close to the floor and his legs kind of like flailing a bit to try to kind of keep and he's uh, doing that weird midair swimming thing because that's the only way he can like keep his body balanced at that angle yeah i mean and and that's really you know for a series that would become known for stunt work i mean that's kind of the extent of what the stunt aspect of the scene is which is not like it's not anything that you're going to worry that he's getting himself hurt doing (laughs) it's just you know everything is in the filmmaking and it's so much more memorable than the more traditional action stunty scene which is the the channel sequence with the train or the helicopter i don't i don't like it i don't like it. i think it's like uh, same before i think it's an hour and 40 of a really great movie and and 10 minutes of not not so great there at the end I, I mean some of it is i feel like it's early cg there's sort of a unreality to it and and, and i never buy that it's an actual helicopter flying through the channel uh, it just doesn't the space there is very ill-defined uh I don't think this movie ends well. I like this movie a lot, but I don't think it ends well. But the blades come so yeah. close to his. <laughs> no, I like, see. I like. I like the threat of the blades. I love. I love him uh, hooking the helicopter onto the back of the train. So he's. He's. Uh, I mean, you expect him to smash into the tunnel. He doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's the there's additional tension there. But there's still construction happening. There's still some cross cutting. I mean, you have Vanessa Redgrave and her doing her thing in, in the car. I mean, there's a lot of traditional suspense filmmaking going on at the same time that you get maybe a not as satisfying early CGI demonstration. I mean, they also, they used real wind and uh, like a lot of what they were, a lot of what you're seeing in terms of Tom Cruise getting dragged through the air by the pressure of the wind or like watching his, his entire face try to ripple down to his chest. Like that's (laughs) at least it's being created by real wind. Mm -hmm. And I think that gives it a little more reality because the environment, I think you're right. I think the environment just feels very unreal. The space feels very unreal, but he feels real and what's happening to him feels real to me a lot more than when he's doing the Tom Cruise headcock, I am feeling feels at you kind of thing. I also just, I like the spitefulness of hooking the, the helicopter. Like there's, yeah. there's a moment of expression on his face that's just, oh, the, all right, this is how we're going to play it. That, <laughs> I know. That I is think a great it's, moment. It's one of the funniest things in the film. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love that moment. And I do love that last bit. Again, it's such a De Palma moment, that last bit of the blade being that close to mm-hmm. its neck. His neck went, its neck, it's trying to, Tom Cruise is like a monster. Um, <laughs> uh, 
that moment where the blade is getting that close to his neck it's such a De Palma horror movie moment and then and then you know the kind of the classic uh thing where the guy faints too <laughs> after after uh seeing all this unfold in front of him that the it's not even a train conductor the what would you even call that guy's job caboose watcher <laughs> caboose watcher <laughs> the caboose boy i mean that guy that guy whoever that guy is he's not he, he doesn't project person who should be in charge somewhere out there there is uh somebody who works on a train who's listening to this podcast who's just throwing their hands up just appalled (laughs) it's cabousier (laughs) cabousier cabousier whatever and the train would just fly off the tracks without this this i like the all right so one of the big things about mission impossible action is just the gopher brokenness of it all there's a lot of tom cruise throwing himself through space Trusting that he's going to catch on to the landing gear of the helicopter, pulling himself up a rope, like trusting that he's going to be able to get somewhere, climb onto the helicopter and do something with it, throwing somebody around at the edge of a cliff. I feel like we. what's interesting about the train sequence is just kind of seeing the earliest evidence of that, where he comes up out of the train and he realizes John Voight has all of this carefully planned survival gear. He has a jacket that's whipping him in the face that he has to get rid of. Uh, like, he, he has nothing. He's unprepared for the situation. He has none of his fancy technology. Like, there's no particular tools he has to survive. And he throws himself into it anyway, literally using the winch to throw himself forward and use himself as a projectile because he he thinks that's going to work. And to the degree that I like that sequence, I like it because it it really does build his character as that character who is willing to use his body as a weapon, as so many action heroes do, but also in a situation where his body is just completely out of his control. I think there's some neat aspects to just sort of how the physical combat is choreographed in that sequence. I, I, can, I concur, Tasha. This, so I guess that puts you and Keith somewhat at odds on the helicopter <laughs> se- sequence. But You're gonna have um, to fight it out on a train. Which one of you gets the high-tech repelling gear and which one of you has just a flapping jacket? To I mean, I, th- Keith looks better in a tie than I do, so I think he gets a tie and jacket and like I get the goggles and the Magno gear. Okay. I'm driving right. the helicopter. <laughs> Awesome. (laughs) Uh, Well, with that, uh, we will take a break and we'll be right back with feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We've gotten quite a few more emails about our Don't Look Now and Hereditary episodes including one epic screed by Christopher in Pensacola, Florida, that runs about 1,500 words. With apologies to Christopher, that's a little longer than we can handle for feedback, but it's a great letter, and one we'll post on Facebook for discussion. So here, let's start with Jesse, who offers some more connections between Hereditary and Don't Look Now. Genevieve, you want to read this one? Sure. Jesse writes... I saw Hereditary first, and one of the connections that struck me as I was watching Don't Look Now was the way that strangers are constantly staring at the protagonists. This is a bit more over the top with the characters revealed to be the cultists in Hereditary, with the huge expectant grins on their faces, but the stinger looks from background actors throughout Don't Look Now really heightened the sense of tension in that film. Donald Sutherland seems to be watched everywhere he goes in Venice, and we're never quite sure if those characters know something about him that we don't. Those looks and the way that the police inspector treated him with suspicion when he reported Julie Christie as missing also introduced the possibility that he may have been the murderer, for me at least. Hereditary brought in this element of suspicion as well, with suggestions that Tony Collette was responsible for the desecration of her mother's grave and her husband's attributing her reports of the supernatural to her history of mental illness. I felt like both movies were on their A-game when they kept us guessing in this way. Another connection. Memorable slash unexpected uses of nudity in both films. People in my screening of Hereditary kept giggling at the naked cultists and making the clucking sound with their tongues throughout the movie, which was very irritating and what was otherwise a fun movie to see in a packed theater. People shouldn't make that noise in the theater. Yeah, your audience sucks. <laughs> yeah. My, my audience was terrified and mesmerized, except when there was screaming. Terrified, terrified, How they react to the naked. I don't know. Once you, once you get into D-Cinema score territory, then, then you tend to experience waves of hostility coming from the audience uh, and i mean i certainly got that in in the um uh what was that uh thing that we did from the guy who did that one movie uh it comes at night 
When okay, I think what you're saying is when uh, people get something that's so far off from what they expected exactly. that they don't respect it, they treat it disrespectfully. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a certain right. I mean, they don't get the and, and hereditary puts you through a lot, and then it hits you with a pretty gonzo finish. And the, the, the witch did the same thing. I think it's the A24 code or something that they have to buy these movies with huge hooks and endings that disappoint the hell out of, well, out, out of uh, the mass audiences that go see them and then market them as the scariest thing that has ever existed on cinema which you know most of the time is not going to pay off and all of these movies have been marketed as the scariest thing that has ever existed pretty on cinema good, they're pretty good they're i mean i was completely wigged out by the witch yeah. but a lot of people were not like i i think that that is a really masterfully made movie it's beautifully shot mm. and it's scary as as heck but there are definitely people who don't yeah, I, I wanted to throw up during hereditary <laughs> <laughs> uh, like i said i had a fight or flight response to that but but to to this per- because, to, the, because the nudity or or <laughs> yeah, I mean, the nudity for sure but i i don't know how people in my audience reacted because i was too busy yelling look you can see his wiener uh, so i didn't hear what anybody else all of it <laughs> so to jesse's point <laughs> I think it's a pretty good one. Uh, the, the the tension in both films is is raised by the looks that strangers give our heroes. This this knowing look, this hostile look. They they obviously have an understanding of things that go way beyond what what our protagonists understand, and um, and it really feeds feeds well into the menace of the film. So that was another aspect of Hereditary where the director was quite a good student of of this movie. Don't look now, and I guess Rosemary's Baby as well has that too. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the part part of the thing that you need to do in a horror movie is isolate the protagonist. You know, make them feel like help is not immediately coming. And mostly films do that by putting them in isolated situations. Um, but here you have two people that are surrounded by people, and they end up being isolated and alienated by the feeling that everybody around them is alien and un- unfriendly, maybe malevolent at absolute best unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it, it gives you a very different feeling for a horror story uh, because it's not, it's separation from other people without necessarily physical isolation from other people. And it's really effective. Definitely. We also got an email from Eric in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. So New Brunswick uh, fans. He throws a little cold water on the hereditary plaudits. Keith? Oh, sure. Eric writes, It was tremendous to hear you pairing Don't Look Now and Hereditary. And like you all, I found myself a little let down by certain aspects of Hereditary. The swapping of influences and or tones in the last third was a definite issue. In the last few years, there's been a rise in what I'd call prestige horror films, including movies like The Witch, The Babadook, Get Out, It Follows, and now Hereditary. Films that have been given consideration and reviewed outside of the genre sub-basements. So perhaps it was leftover anxiety from the film, but I was feeling a certain amount of stress when not being as effusive with my praise for Hereditary when discussing it and recommending it to my film-going friends. When arguing about movies with horror naysayers, there tends to be concessions or stipulations tabled to defend against perceived gaps in logic or character motivation. Sure, it doesn't make sense, but within the reality of the film, and so on. With Hereditary, that wasn't so much the case. In fact, everything seemed as intricately planned out as Tony Collette's miniatures. So what was my problem? I'm still not sure, I guess. And perhaps a couple more viewings will illuminate my concerns. But I wonder if I might not have been hoping for Hereditary to be the perfect, scariest film since The Exorcist that the promotions promised. If so, that's a lot to expect of a film that's already going above and way, way, way beyond the usual standards of the current Blum Factory products in the market. So maybe I should just be satisfied with a horror movie that takes itself seriously and manages to mess up a sunny afternoon for me at the Mollerplex. One thing you didn't touch on that drove me a little crazy about the film... Why would the grandmother have a photo album of her group's cult shenanigans in a box with her hummels and creepy welcome mats? It was one of those everything-is-falling-together moments of exposition, but it stuck out to me as a little false. Likewise in Get Out, when Daniel Kaluuya finds a stack of photos of Allison Williams with all the preceding African-American men she had lured to her parents' home. Why would she keep those photos? I can almost see her having them on her phone, but why would she take the time to print them off and hide them in her closet? I guess so Daniel Kaluuya could find them and move the story along. Yeah, on that last point, I'm totally, <laughs> I was totally bothered by both of those aspects, for sure. Wow, I, I had never really thought of that in inter- like that. I'm showing my age here, because I'm from an age where you take pictures on a camera and then you have a physical picture. Mm. But coming up in an age where you have to make an additional effort to get a physical copy of a, a picture – 
that actually is a much bigger question. Like, obviously, it's it's very plot convenient. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what would have made it work? If they were photo booth strips, because people today cannot resist a photo booth, yeah, and it true. does oh, give really you good. a a hard copy photo (laughs) there is that i mean i think they're her trophy gallery to be honest Mm -hmm. i think she is very much presented as a cold and crafty sociopath who is very very proud of her skill at capturing men and luring them to her parents and making money off of it uh like i think it's very deliberate like he the the way that he finds it just reminds me of any number of stories where somebody finds like a serial killer's you know supply of things that he's taken off the victims uh, that's a good point. I mean, but but it is it is a, a huge narrative convenience and gets us plunging into the second part of the third act or the the final stretch. Kind of catapults us there. I, I love Genevieve's idea. That should, should, should have been like a script doctor on the thing because <laughs> that, that is perfect. Like any any couple in that in that first certainly in the first you know six months when things are going great, you you, you walk by a photo booth, you're, you're going to take some shots. That makes sense. The thing is, it is awfully narratively convenient, but the the strength of the image, you know, everybody to some degree wants to think that if they're in a relationship and it's good, that they're, they're special somehow. And like the photographic evidence flipping through these photos that he was targeted specifically for being a type I think that's emotionally devastating, even in a way that knowing all of these other men were victims isn't. Like knowing that he is in no way special, that he fell for this thing that so many other people have fallen for, and that he's just a notch on her her bedpost, essentially. Mm. Like I, I think the emotional impact of that moment is worth the contrivance. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, I really want to see that film again. I oh only saw it once and I, I really loved it. Jordan Peele, you're so good. He's good. He's coming back. He's got another one coming out. Yeah, he's got, he's got a lot coming out. He has yeah, a Palmer movie coming out this year too, or, or uh, yeah, theory, he, in theory, which, he, which he's distancing himself from. Unfortunately, oh, no. yeah, yeah, no. it did not go well. He's uh, mm. very uh, upset about the whole situation. It's not at any fall festivals. It's going to be a <laughs> maybe a fascinating <laughs> mishap, but probably going to be rough, rough going. Um, so anyway, that wraps up feedback for this episode. We always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Mission Impossible Fallout and talk about all that's changed in the 22 years this franchise has been in existence. Look for that next Tuesday. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then... Hasta lasagna. Don't get any on you.